Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report, the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, providing insights and commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of appellate law developments. This week, we'll hear two viewpoints regarding a consequential U.S. Supreme Court case in the area of civil procedure, one that's been appealed from the California Supreme Court. In the case, Bristol-Myers-Squibb v. Superior Court of California, San Francisco County, justices will once again grapple with the limits of personal jurisdiction, this time specific personal jurisdiction. In its ruling, the California Supreme Court found that enough contacts existed between California and the out-of-state drugmaker defendant Bristol-Myers-Squibb such that a number of out-of-state plaintiffs, though they hadn't purchased or been harmed by the company's drugs in California, could bring their products liability action in California state court. That 4-3 ruling is now up for review and has engendered stark disagreements between, among others, the many interested parties who have filed amicus briefs in the matter, two of whom join the show today. Professor Andrew Bratt from UC Berkeley Law School argues that the California Supreme Court was right to find specific personal jurisdiction in the action and more generally contends that the doctrine of specific personal jurisdiction is a flexible one, unfit for a precise, restrictive definition. Fred Heastan from the Civil Justice Association of California who filed an amicus brief in conjunction with the U.S. and California Chambers of Commerce, argues for just that, a strict rule requiring a causal link between a defendant's state contacts and the harm sued over. I guess will help us unpack the issues involved in this important case and, to the extent possible, read the tea leaves after a relatively active oral argument session Tuesday. Before we hear from my guest, though, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having tuned into the podcast. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With that, let's hear first from UC Berkeley Law School professor Andrew Bratt. Uh, we're delighted to welcome to the program now Professor Andrew Bratt, a professor of law at University of California, Berkeley Law School. He teaches civil procedure, conflict of laws, and remedies, and headed a cohort of professors that submitted an amicus brief in the case we'll talk about in just a moment. Professor Bratt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so a pretty significant case here we're chatting about, one that heard oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday. It originates from the, the California Supreme Court. It's Bristol-Myers-Squibb versus Superior Court of California, San Francisco County. Um, it deals with personal jurisdiction, specifically specific personal jurisdiction and its contours and, and limits. Um, so obviously talking about the the gatekeeping mechanism of civil lawsuits, so a very important question at, at issue here. So let's go ahead and, and dive into it. Um, we'll start with the, the underlying facts here. Who is assuming whom here? Why does a suit come to be? And I guess is, is it pretty important in, in this case? I understand a, a number of the plaintiffs involved in the suit are not uh, from California. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Uh, the, the case is, is one that deals with uh, kind of a nagging problem of personal jurisdiction, one that uh, has certainly been grist for a lot of first-year law school exams over the years. Uh, it's a products liability action in California against Bristol-Myers Squibb relating to injuries arising from uh, the use of their blood-spinning drug Plavix. Now, in the case, you've got claims by uh, about 80 Californians uh, and then joined with those claims are separate claims by about 500 plaintiffs uh, who are out from outside California. That is, they don't live here. They took the drug elsewhere. They were injured elsewhere. Uh, and it's also important to note that the suit is not just against Bristol-Myers Squibb, but also against McKesson, the California-based distributor of the drug. And so the question in the case is whether or not California can exercise personal jurisdiction uh, over Bristol-Myers Squibb with respect to the claims brought by the non-Californians. So if you think back to first-year civil procedure and good old international shoe company versus Washington, the question is, are there minimum contacts between uh, the plaintiff's claims, the defendant, and California such that California can exercise jurisdiction over them? Okay, yeah, that, that certainly brings back back some memories uh, for me, and I'm sure many listeners as well. Um, so this case is removed from the Superior Court in San Francisco to uh, to federal court, but then remanded back to state court, and the Superior Court there determined that the California could rightly exercise a general personal jurisdiction over those out of state plaintiffs. Oh, I'm sorry, um, over the defendants with regard to those out of state plaintiffs' claims. Um, but that finding is reversed by the Court of Appeal and the, the California Supreme Court, which held that general pers personal jurisdiction is not appropriate here. Why Why did they find that to be the case? 
Well, it's interesting because uh, it, it comes out of really a change in direction by the Supreme Court uh, over the course of the last few years with respect to general uh, jurisdiction. So uh, your listeners may also recall that the Supreme Court, after a, a flurry of activity uh, in the 1980s, uh, on personal jurisdiction, uh, in which it started to become clear that there really was not much consensus uh, on the court for how to deal with the hard cases. We had about 20 years of radio silence from the court uh, about personal jurisdiction generally, but the court has gotten back into that business in a big way uh, since 2011. Uh, if you count the cases the court heard just this week, that'll be six of them uh, over the course of the last six years uh, after a long period of saying nothing. And one of the things that the court has made clear in its recent cases uh, is that there is a, a distinction between specific jurisdiction and general jurisdiction, that is, between jurisdiction uh, that is linked to uh, the case before a particular court and general jurisdiction, uh, in which there is no such linkage. Now, the thought had long been uh, that there was general jurisdiction over a defendant. That is, you could sue a defendant for anything uh, in a state, whether or not the case was related to that state at all, so long as that defendant was related or was engaged in continuous and systematic contacts uh, in that state. And the thought was, well, if the defendant uh, is doing a lot of business in, say, California, has some factories, has a lot of employees, that sort of thing, uh, that you could sue it if that defendant in California for anything, uh, regardless of whether there was any connection uh, between the case in California. Uh, the Supreme Court ha has made clear in a couple of cases recently that, no, that's in fact not the case. Uh, there's only general jurisdiction over a defendant in the state uh, where it is essentially at home. And for a corporation, that means the state of incorporation of the principal place of business. And so what that means is, is that if you're going to sue Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, which is incorporated in Delaware and has its principal place of business in New York, in California, then it has to be based on specific jurisdiction. That is, there must be some linkage between the case uh, and California. And so the original thought of the plaintiffs in this case was that, well, we can sue Bristol-Myers Squibb in California, even if the claims aren't related to California because there's general jurisdiction. Uh, it became clear after the Supreme Court's recent decisions that, in fact, is not the case. If there's going to be jurisdiction in California, it's got to be specific. Okay. I'm so maybe an interesting hypothetical to, to ponder if this case had come up a decade ago or a generation ago in the SCOTUS precedent, perhaps general personal jurisdiction would have been found here. In fact, I think it would have been uncontroversial. Getting to the question at issue then, specific personal jurisdiction, the California Supreme Court found that it was proper to apply that and uh, to allow the out-of-state plaintiff's claims to go through and for the, the California courts to have jurisdiction over the defendant Bristol-Myers Squibb. Um, perhaps at first, I guess, could you describe just what the rule of specific personal jurisdiction is as you see it? Of course, the definition of that rule is at issue here in the case. And then could you describe how the uh, the California Supreme Court elucidated it and how it determined it could exercise that uh, specific personal jurisdiction here? Right. So in contrast to general jurisdiction, where there doesn't need to be any linkage at all uh, between the facts and the forum state, when you're talking about specific jurisdiction, uh, at least according to uh, a set of precedents from the court since International Shoe, uh, which came out in 1945, uh, the question is, well, does the case arise from or relate to the contacts uh, with the forum state? Uh, and so what the California Supreme Court uh, essentially said uh, in a 4-3 decision uh, deciding that there was jurisdiction over Bristol-Myers Squibb over the claims by the non-Californians, said, well, um, a few things. First of all, it's clear that there's minimum contacts between Bristol-Myers Squibb and California, particularly as it relates to Plavix. Bristol-Myers Squibb has sold 180 million Plavix pills in uh, the state of California. And so to the extent that uh, the plaintiffs, even the out-of-state plaintiffs, are alleging injuries arising from taking Plavix, well, the, that, those injuries certainly relate to uh, the defendant's Plavix-related conduct in California. Uh, moreover, the California Supreme Court said something very interesting. It, it, it pushes back a bit 
against this idea that uh, general jurisdiction and specific jurisdiction are hard and fast categories. Rather, it says that specific jurisdiction has something of a sliding scale. That is, the more activity related to the plaintiff's claims that occurs in the forum state, the more leeway there will be uh, with respect to uh, jurisdiction. So here, you have Plavix engaged in a, a uniform nationwide course of conduct to market this drug. It's done so extraordinarily successfully uh, in California. It's also caused injuries to a significant number of Californians. Uh, and so under those circumstances, uh, when you have Californians suing Bristol-Myers Squibb in California, there's really nothing unfair uh, about allowing out-of-state plaintiffs who've been injured by exactly the same conduct uh, to uh, join in the California proceeding. This case up pretty quickly then gets sent up on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Cert is granted. Um, had you been tracking this case, um, what uh, what drew your attention to it, and, and what uh, inspired you to, to pen an amicus brief with your cohort of uh, civil procedure professors? Uh, well, really two things. First of all, uh, for, for the small but enthusiastic community of people who are very interested in these issues, whether on the academic side or the mass tort litigation side, uh, this has been a question that's been hanging out there for a long time. Uh, and when the Supreme Court, when the California Supreme Court decided this case, uh, and it decided the case uh, in favor of the plaintiffs, uh, it seemed fairly likely that the Supreme Court might decide uh, to go ahead and take it, particularly in light of its uh, cases over the last few years, which have been uh, on the restrictive side when it comes to jurisdiction. Uh, with respect to the particular brief, uh, without uh, putting words in the mouth of my, my co-authors, uh, I think that what inspired us to write it was that it became clear once the once Bristol-Myers filed its brief at the Supreme Court that it was really going for gold here. It was proposing what we believed was uh, a far more restrictive test for personal jurisdiction uh, than the Supreme Court uh, had ever authorized, at least since international shoes. So we believed uh, that it would be useful to the court to write a brief uh, that focused on uh, the arguments that Bristol-Myers was making uh, specifically in the Supreme Court. Yeah, as opposed to the uh, the respondents' argument, like the Superior Court of California, your, your brief does seem to, to squarely regard just what the rule should be, and 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 are arguing against the uh, proposed rule by Bristol Myers Squibb here. Well, our view was very much that it, it's possible that the Supreme Court could decide uh, that the jurisdiction was simply inappropriate uh, in this case for a variety of reasons. We don't think that's correct. We think jurisdiction was appropriate uh, in California, but. Uh, what we hope to at least be able to say that if the Supreme Court were to decide in favor of Bristol Myers, that it shouldn't do so uh, on the basis of the very restrictive test that was being proposed uh, by Bristol Myers and the Supreme Court. Okay, we'll go ahead and, and unpack that a little bit more. So, I mean, essentially, both sides here, petitioners Bristol Myers Webb uh, and the respondents, California Superior Court, are contending that the other side's interpretation of specific jurisdiction is wrong and it deviates from Supreme Court precedent. Bishop Myers Squibb says this is a, a vast overreach of specific personal jurisdiction. You argue that Bristol Myers Squibb's take is an unprecedented proposed rule. So walk me through exactly what, uh, why you think that the proposed rule by Bristol Myers Squibb is unprecedented here. Well, Bristol Myers is proposing a strict causation test. That is, that there's only specific jurisdiction in a state uh, if the defendant's conduct in that state caused the injury. In fact, they go so far, here's another uh, good memory from the first year of law school, they go so far as to say uh, in their brief that there's only specific jurisdiction if there's proximate cause between the defendant's conduct uh, and the injury. And that would be, in our view, a far more restrictive standard uh, than the Supreme Court uh, has ever stated for specific jurisdiction. Uh, in fact, the Supreme Court has always said that there's specific jurisdiction, or at least they've always said that there's jurisdiction, if the defendant's contact with the forum state, or the, the plaintiff's claims, that is, arise out of or relate to the defendant's activities in the forum state. So in our view, a strict causation test 
would not only be far more restrictive than anything the Supreme Court has ever said before, it might actually lead uh, to throwing into doubt many of the court's earlier decisions uh, on personal jurisdiction in which you couldn't necessarily draw a specific line uh, saying that uh, the defendant's conduct in the forum state caused the plaintiff's claim, uh, but when nevertheless the defendant's contacts with the forum state related uh, substantially to the plaintiff's claims, and that uh, justified jurisdiction. So uh, in our view, the, the defendants are really over, the ones who are overreaching here. Maybe just to, to nail down on this one point about the rule that you think exists and the rule that Bristol Myers Squibb is proposing for, and also the rule that the California Supreme Court uh, elucidated, those could all sort of be three different things, right? So what you're saying is there could be this rule. It might not necessarily be the, the sliding scale approach that the California Supreme Court took. Is that uh, fair to say? Uh, you could, yes, I suppose that's fair to say. I think that, that one could say that there's jurisdiction in California without adopting a sliding scale uh, approach. Uh, from my perspective, the, the sliding scale approach uh, is, is uh, not terribly offensive, um, but uh, certainly, um, certainly one could reject that specific language and still conclude that California has jurisdiction just under the cases that the Supreme Court has been deciding for the last uh, 70 or so years. Sure. I bring that up because it, one argument that the, the petitioners make is that this sliding scale approach brings the, the specific personal jurisdiction doctrine to start to resemble more closely the, the general personal jurisdiction doctrine, and that, that causes the distance distance between them to be muddier, and that, um, as the Supreme Court has said, they say you know, there should be a distinction and they should be different. Um, why does that, uh, that, that not trouble you? Well, first, I don't think that's right. Um, I think that what general jurisdiction says is that you can sue a defendant uh, in the forum state, even if the claims have nothing to do with the defendant's activities in the forum state. That is not at all what the plaintiffs are arguing in this case. The, there's no doubt uh, that the defendants here are engaged in exactly the same kind of activity in the forum state uh, that cause injury elsewhere. So it's not as though the defendants are being sued in California uh, on the basis of activity uh, that it wasn't engaged in in the state of California. So really, this has nothing to do with general jurisdiction. Um, now, as a more general matter, whether or not uh, if it's not general jurisdiction, then is specific jurisdiction supposed to be a rather broad and flexible category? And I think the answer to that is clearly yes. Justice Ginsburg said as much for uh, the court in the recent opinion uh, in Daimler versus Bauman. And in fact, that's what the court had in mind when it decided international shoe uh, in 1945. So it's not so much about muddying the waters between specific and general jurisdiction. What it's about uh, is ensuring that specific jurisdiction retains its flexibility once you've decided that general jurisdiction is going to be a really narrow category. Okay, and you, you argue that that flexibility, the flexibility of specific personal jurisdiction doctrine is a matter of fact, but moreover, it's it's good policy. It's a good thing that that is a flexible inquiry. There's benefits that well, Brian, derive flexibility, from that. Sorry to interrupt you, but flexibility was the whole point. That is, when the Supreme Court ditched the rigid dogma of territoriality and good old Penoyer versus Neff. When it decided international shoe in 1945, it was throwing off all these years of wooden restrictions in favor of a test that embraced flexibility in case-by-case analysis and an assessment of uh, the reasonableness of jurisdiction case-by-case. Case. So uh, in our view, what the defendants are seeking here in the form of a strict test would really be turning back the clock uh, some 70 years. In doing so, you also argue that that would cause quite a bit of disruption and also inefficiency in the courts, particularly in, in complex civil claims, but also in simple ones as well. What uh, On what do you base that uh, contention? Well, I mean, the problem here in, in this case it, it actually is raised on the facts. That is, although Bristol-Myers Squibb doesn't make much of this, there's a California defendant in this case, McKesson, uh, against whom there are colorable claims. And so if the defendant's rule uh, excludes Bristol-Myers Squibb, that would mean that the plaintiffs here would have to sue McKesson in California and Bristol-Myers Squibb elsewhere. Now, maybe that wouldn't be the case. Maybe they wouldn't sue McKesson at all. That's certainly a possibility. But if you look at cases where the joinder, uh, we have joinder of claims 
some of which may be uh, acceptable under uh, a broad jurisdictional rule, some of which may be unacceptable under a narrow jurisdictional rule, suddenly you're talking about taking cases where you have lots of claims that could be litigated together, and you're forcing them to be split apart and litigated state by state. In fact, this is something that Justice Sotomayor uh, uh, picked up on uh, in her questions at oral argument uh, yesterday. So uh, in our view, uh, it simply makes sense for, as the California Supreme Court decided, these cases to be litigated in one proceeding rather than in proceedings that are chopped up state by state, in our view, artificially. Uh, moreover, I, I think that if the Supreme Court takes the position that a causation rule is necessary, then it throws into great doubt the possibility of multi-state class actions. That is, if you have a rule that says only in-state plaintiffs uh, will be able to seek their forum state's jurisdiction, uh, then that means uh, that there's no possibility of a class action uh, that includes plaintiffs from out of state, except except in the defendant's home state. So not only does it have the run the risk of creating serious inefficiencies, it also runs the risk of essentially allowing defendants to choose in advance the friendliest forum in which they might face litigation for a nationwide course of conduct. And we don't think either of those results uh, is a good one. I know one proposed alternative that would allow multiple suits from different states to be grouped together into single actions, is, and it's proposed by petitioners, is that you could have a multi-district litigation where it's a, a creature of federal courts. Um, but you argue that that is not a solution in cases like this. Um, why, why do you say that? Well, there's several things. First is that uh, not all cases are going to be able to be in an MDL, uh, and that's because there may not be federal subject matter jurisdiction. Uh, in this case, uh, there was no federal subject matter jurisdiction over the cases uh, because removal uh, by McKesson, an in-state defendant, was improper. And so MDL simply can't reach uh, all of litigation. Second, MDL uh, is contingent on the Congress. That is, Congress uh, could decide to get rid of it uh, at any time if it wanted to, and then there would still be this constitutional uh, impediment in place. Third, I think it's not entirely clear uh, that MDL... Uh, doesn't face the same kind of jurisdictional hurdles that uh, state court jurisdiction where the Supreme Court has never decided the difference between uh, the limits on personal jurisdiction in federal courts versus state courts. And in fact, I don't think the court uh, is likely to do so uh, in this case where it hasn't been squarely presented. Uh, and fourth, I think that the defendant's embrace of MDL just puts the lie to their argument. That is, if the defendant is right and multi-district litigation is an acceptable alternative for mass tort proceedings and the federal courts are not limited in terms of their jurisdictional power by state boundaries, that means the MDL could, could have been put across the street in the federal courthouse in San Francisco and Bristol-Myers Squibb would have been stuck litigating all the claims against it nationwide uh, in California. And they don't seem to have a problem with that. In fact, they don't seem to think uh, that that would be unconstitutionally inconvenient at all. And if that's the case, then really uh, what it shows is that the defendant's argument has nothing to do with the traditional geographic-based arguments underlying restrictions on personal jurisdiction. What it is is a complaint about the California state courts. Uh, and if that, in fact, is their complaint, it's really not a complaint that has anything to do with personal jurisdiction. It's really something that Congress should solve by expanding subject matter jurisdiction uh, in the federal courts. So uh, you take all of those things together, uh, and MDL is not, really not a viable alternative uh, in this case. Uh, it's also one that exposes uh, the inconsistencies in the defendant's argument. Okay, let, let's uh, regard one more counter-argument on the other side here, Bristol-Myers-Squibbon. The Amici on the other side will claim in, in all of their filings that this is simply unfair, that the idea of personal jurisdiction, uh, the doctrine is to give defendants notice as to where they're likely to be sued, where they'll be hauled into court. And what they see as a stretching of specific jurisdiction makes it possible that defendants could be sued essentially in, in any state, and they would be, it would be harder for them to predict where they could be sued. So what, uh, what is your response to those uh, arguments about uh, fairness and due process? Yeah, well, first I would just uh, return to my argument about MDL. That is, there's no predictability whatsoever about where an MDL can be located. So if the defendant's concern uh, is about predictability, then uh, MDL should provide cold comfort. 
But setting MDL aside, uh, it simply seems strange to me that the defendants would make an argument about unpredictability when they sell 180 million Plavix pills in California. Uh, surely uh, they know they might be sued uh, in California, and surely uh, they might have been sued in California uh, on a larger number of claims than there actually were uh, in this case all told. Finally, I think it's just a novel argument for the defendants to say uh, that we should be able to predict uh, where every claim is going to be based on where every uh, one of our pills goes. That would be, uh, as far as I can tell, an extremely uh, radical reinterpretation of personal jurisdiction law. Okay, a couple of broader ones here to close. Uh, this certainly sounds like a pretty significant question when dealing with the gatekeeping mechanism. In your view, how significant is this case? And if the Supreme Court does reverse here, how what, how might that impact folks that, that practice in, uh, in civil litigation and particularly in the area of mass torts as here? Well, I think as with all of these personal jurisdiction cases over the years, the question is ultimately uh, how significant does the Supreme Court want to make it? And what I mean by that is, is that the court could, uh, issue a very modest opinion, either affirming or reversing, but doing very little, uh, to, uh, uh, overturn past precedent or issue broad pronouncements. It's possible that the court, as they have in other cases like this, could, uh, be fractured, then in which case it wouldn't, uh, do very much. At the same time, it's also possible that the court, as they did in the recent general jurisdiction cases, uh, could get together uh, and really reformulate the law uh, quite significantly here. So ultimately, uh, we're just going to have to wait for what the court says. I will uh, add, though, um, that the Supreme Court, I think, in its recent cases, uh, has been uh, doing a lot of rulemaking, that is, setting boundaries for when, when state court jurisdiction is appropriate. What they haven't been doing very much of is telling us what the purpose of these restrictions on jurisdiction uh, is. That is, why are we restricting jurisdiction? Is it to protect the defendants from uh, a geographically inconvenient forum? Is it to police plaintiff forum shopping? Is it to ensure uh, a convenient forum for both sides? It seems to me that the court isn't saying very much about what their overall project is here. Uh, and until uh, they get some consensus on that, uh, these cases are going to remain unpredictable because it's a little bit of shadow boxing. Okay, yeah, one last one. Uh, of course, tea leaf reading from the Supreme Court is obviously pretty a pretty perilous practice, but did you get a sense at all from oral argument how justices might be leaning or how the court might feel regarding the question here? Uh, you know, I think that's always dangerous, and I, I have regarded myself as out of the prediction game. <laughs> Uh, for a while now. But uh, one thing I will say is that I think that the court was very active uh, in this case. It was a hot bench. Um, I thought that there were uh, perceptive questions uh, on both sides. We got an interesting glimpse uh, into uh, the new justice's views on these issues. He seemed uh, to be far more concerned about issues of federalism uh, than uh, the other justices have, have uh, suggested in the past. Uh, my my feeling after reading uh, the after reading the transcript of the, of the oral argument uh, is that the court has a lot of work to do uh, in in deciding this case. And while I'm, uh, the the result may be in doubt, equally in doubt uh, is whether or not the court uh, really has any consensus on these questions generally. Yeah, they're definitely hard questions posed to, to both sides, so it'll be interesting to see how this ruling comes down, and obviously, depending on how it does, you might need to, to brush up on that grading rubric for your uh, civil procedure, uh, civil <laughs> law for 1.0 exam. Um, Professor Andrew Brott, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Once more, there was Professor Andrew Brott the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. We'll hear now a very contrasting viewpoint, that of Fred Heestand, the Civil Justice Association of California, on why the California Supreme Court's ruling should be reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast now Mr. Fred Heestand, General Counsel with the Civil Justice Association of California. Mr. Heestand, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. 
Okay, so you joined on to a, an amicus brief in this case, the Bristol-Myers-Squibb case argued before the U.S. High Court on Tuesday, dealing with personal jurisdiction, um, and a, a case involving some out-of-state plaintiffs in a products liability suit. Your brief um, joins together the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the California Chamber of Commerce, and in your group, the Civil Justice Association of California. So I'd like to get into the case here and, and the arguments you present and in your take on some of the arguments that the other side uh, presents, such as those championed by our, our previous guest, uh, Professor Andrew Bratt. So first, um, let's get into the underlying facts here. So as you frame them in, in, in your brief, how would you describe what's going on here and what are the, the most salient facts are? Sure. Well, um, this uh, is a class action brought in uh, California against uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and the uh, plaintiffs in this class action allege that Bristol-Myers Squibb's uh, drug Plavix was uh, misrepresented in terms of its uh, safety and efficacy. And uh, these plaintiffs uh, consist of uh, 575 residents from outside of California, not California residents, from 33 different states, with only 86 uh, California resident plaintiffs suing at uh, uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb here in that claim. And uh, as to these out-of-state plaintiffs, um, none of them were injured uh, uh, in California. They didn't take uh, Plavix in California. They were not uh, prescribed Plavix by any California doctors. They did not have uh, the Plavix prescriptions filled by any pharmacies in California. Um, all uh, they really had in the way of any uh, alleged contact with California, and they didn't have it, was that uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb had a marketing campaign, which was national and so included California, and it had uh, a distributor, uh, McKesson, which had some um, offices and buildings in California, and that was it. So the feeling here was that uh, when it comes to personal jurisdiction, which is, of course, an existential issue for any court uh, to decide uh, what's going to happen to uh, uh, parties that are before it, um, there, there was really no, no adequate contact. No, what we felt was minimal uh, contacts necessary for, for fairness. And granted that uh, fairness is difficult to uh, pinpoint in a lot of uh, instances, uh, this just uh, struck us uh, as unfair, which is, I guess, a, a synonym for due process. So that's why we decided to um, get involved, the Civil Justice Association. And incidentally, I wanted to uh, mention that though CJAC joined in this brief with the other friends of the court that, that you uh, identified. All the lion's share of the work on this brief was done by uh, Mr. Pincus of uh, Myers-Brown. I, I thought it was an excellent brief, and we were glad to be a part of it. We'll go ahead and, and unpack further the arguments that are presented in that brief. But before we, we get to those, I'd like to, to hear your description of the California Supreme Court ruling, where notwithstanding the facts that you lay out, jurisdiction was found to be proper for those out-of-state claims, uh, specifically uh, specific personal jurisdiction. So first, maybe could you explain to me uh, how you view the, the specific personal jurisdiction rule, how you would describe it, and then what the, the California Supreme Court's reasoning was for why that rule um, should provide for jurisdiction here? Well, um, the California Supreme Court, uh, in a very closely divided four to three opinion, uh, in a majority opinion by the Chief Justice, uh, Kantil Sakauye, um, held that personal jurisdiction uh, was satisfied using um, what, what it described as the sliding scale test for um, uh, personal jurisdiction, which is, uh, I think, Justice Werdiger, in writing the dissent, uh, described it as uh, kind of a stew uh, test uh, that was uh, rather amorphous and ultimately uh, meaningless, uh, and, and basically uh, ended up equating specific jurisdiction with general jurisdiction. Um, general jurisdiction, as you may know, uh, refers to a court's power to hear cases over out-of-state parties who have extensive, systematic, and continuous dealings with the state in which the court sits. 
And uh, if a defendant is served with process while physically in that state, or if the defendant, in this case Bristol Myers, is uh, incorporated in the state, uh, domiciled in the state, has, you know, has his principal office in the state, then ger- general jurisdiction exists. Uh, but specific jurisdiction, which is uh, um, everyone conceded that general jurisdiction doesn't apply here, specific jurisdiction exists when the defendant's activities in the forum state give rise to the claim. And uh, our feeling was that the what Bristol-Myers Squibb did in this state, which was basically market and sell its drugs, and it was a, a small percentage of its income from the Plavix drug in California um, in terms of its overall uh, profit from that drug, that those are just not sufficient contacts to enable out-of-state residents to pile on uh, and bring their their lawsuits in California. Sure. Then mo- moving into your brief, it seems like essentially the argument that you make is that there, there has to be a, a tighter link. And uh, indeed, I think you argue for a, a causal link between a uh, defendant's contacts in a state and the harm that gives rise to the suit. Now, in, in so arguing for, for that rule, you say that the California Supreme Court got it wrong and deviated from, from past Supreme Court law and precedent. The other side here would contend that, that that rule that you champion, that there must be some causal link between the, the contacts and the harm, also itself is sort of deviates from SCOTUS precedent, that there has not ever been required such a tight link. What, what's the basis for that argument, that, that there should be a, a causal link between the, the contacts and the the harm giving rise to the claim in specific personal jurisdiction, and what uh, what sort of uh, Supreme Court precedent do you pull to uh, support it? Well, uh, you go back to the International Shoe case in 1945, and then other uh, cases that the U.S. Supreme Court has decided uh, regarding both general and personal jurisdiction. Um, they they uh, have talked about things arising proximately. They've used that language. Uh, which is not uh, all that different from proximally caused. Uh, in Burger King, for instance, um, uh, the court said that where litigation seeks to hold a defendant to account for consequences that arise proximally from such activities, then personal ju- jurisdiction would apply. But um, so that proximately arise from, as uh, we argue here, should should just be um, more explicitly uh, defined and clarified to mean uh, proximally caused, uh, and that would give you uh, some kind of linkage at least for out-of-state people trying to come within um, California and take take advantage of uh, uh, you know California's laws. Uh, in fact. You know, we one of the big concerns when we urged the California Supreme Court to take this case and uh, decide it was to clarify uh, what the parameters were for personal jurisdiction because we were afraid that uh, because of the ambiguity and certainty as to what personal jurisdiction was, um, California would become, because of its attractive substantive law on products liability and just what you might call general liability expansion rules, um, that it would become a magnet. And it, it turned out that uh, that fear um, that we had is uh, largely materialized. A, uh, a study that, that was done by uh, some lawyers in, in Washington, D.C., uh, Mark Behrens and Christopher Apple, um, looked at uh, lawsuits filed in Los Angeles and San Francisco Superior Courts between uh, 2010 and 2016, finding that 90% of the 25,503 plaintiffs were from out of state. 67% of the 2,919 cases in the study involved only non-resident plaintiffs with a small group of 25 law firms representing more than 90% of the plaintiffs. So um, the favorable litigation climate California has, uh, including its outlying sliding scale standard for determining personal jurisdiction, has uh, made this uh, what we consider an uh, unfortunate situation um, even even worse than, than we feared it was at the time we 
urge the, the California Supreme Court to take this case and try to straighten the, this stuff out. Jumping up a bit more on that uh, the sliding scale approach employed here by the California Supreme Court, um, one argument that the brief presents around it is that, that that approach begins to look sort of more like general jurisdiction. What do, what do you mean when you say that the sliding scale approach resembles general, not specific personal jurisdiction, and why why is that an important point to raise? Well, the the, Cal- the U.S. Supreme Court has narrowed uh, over the years what uh, uh, general jurisdiction is. So now they really emphasize that for general jurisdiction, it should be for a corporation, the home state for that corporation. You know, so as as everyone concedes, general jurisdiction doesn't apply here. So then the question is, how do you get um, these 500 and some 575 out-of-state plaintiffs in here? You, all, all you're left with is um, personal jurisdiction. But the way the California Supreme Court interprets personal jurisdiction using this uh, rather uh, vague, amorphous um, sliding scale test is it uh, just becomes a backdoor approach, as Justice Werdiger said, to general jurisdiction because there there's not the uh, the kind of contacts, minimal contacts necessary for them to get in other than what they resorted to here was uh, uh, basically two arguments that, oh, well, there's a, a a national marketing campaign and a few contacts through the distributor. Uh, so therefore, uh, using this sliding scale test, which, you know, as I said, is, is vague, uh, gets them in. Um, and the problem with that sliding scale test is that it takes general and specific jurisdiction, which are analytically distinct categories, and puts them on a, on this sliding scale where the question is whether the requisite link between the forum and the litigation exists by treating, quote, the intensity of a defendant's forum contacts and the connection of the plaintiff's claim to those contacts as inversely related. If a defendant's forum contacts are sufficiently wide-ranging, then the plaintiff's claim need only arise directly from those contacts at all, or need not arise directly from those contacts at all. The defendant's activities in the forum state need not be either the proximate cause or the but-for cause. So, uh, you know, you end up with uh, a loosey-goosey test here. That basically, uh, I, I don't see um, any demarcation that would keep out-of-state plaintiffs out of California that have no contact except that the um, product that they're uh, suing over um, was... Uh, manufactured by someone, uh, Bristol-Myers in this case, who used a distributor that had some offices in California and um, who ha- and, and the manufacturer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, had a nationwide marketing campaign, which by definition uh, uh, was in California. But that's it. That, that would seem to me to permit any plaintiff out of state to uh, join any lawsuit that's brought in California against the company that manufactured the product that they also feel injured them in their state where they purchased it, used it, or, you know, and allegedly were injured by it. And that just basically does away with any any standard for a specific personal jurisdiction. That concern seems to include within it uh, some, some fairness and due due process considerations, and that seems to be sort of an overarching theme of the brief that you're a part of, that this sort of rule would, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be fair and wouldn't provide enough due process from keeping defendants on notice as to where they would be sued. Uh, one pushback against that was brought by Justice Kagan during oral arguments, where she makes the point that Bristol-Myers Squibb sells these drugs in all 50 states. Um, so theoretically, they are already on notice that they could be sued in in any of those states, so um, does that undercut at all? Well, you can, the fairness you can be sued, and so I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, you know what, what? What we don't disagree with here is that you know you could bring this suit in federal court anywhere, um, as long as you know you satisfy the federal jurisdictional requirements. But they're they're satisfied here, and I, I believe. Uh, uh, Neil Keitel, in, in uh, his main brief in this, pointed out that, uh, you know, 
there's no argument that we have that this couldn't have been brought in in federal court. But to bring it in state courts, uh, you know, Kagan's argument uh, boils down to because you sell your drug in, or your product in some other state, therefore that's enough to, to get you into that state, um, even though the person who's suing you in that state uh, wasn't there, didn't buy the product there, didn't use the product there, uh, was not uh, uh, provided the product by anyone from there. They just want to bring it there because they like the laws there. That can't be what personal jurisdiction means, because if it is, then everyone has personal jurisdiction. The justice has also reckoned with uh, some federalist uh, federalism concerns, and in the brief part of you, the point is made that um, the California Supreme Court's rule conflicts with some settled notions of federalism. What uh, what is your argument there? What are you talking about? Well, I, I, as I mentioned, the you know, the main argument before is that uh, states have state territorial jurisdiction, whereas the federal government is a you know has national jurisdiction. Uh, and so you, what you can do in federal courts is much more extensive in terms of, of getting uh, jurisdiction over parties than what you can do in state court. Um, again, if, if any state court can act the same as a federal court, uh, you, you've obliterated um, the, the distinction between what uh, Justice Berger and others have called our enduring federalism. You've, you've basically made, in a weird way, uh, the state's the same as the federal government in terms of jurisdiction, which, uh, you know, I don't know where that leads, but, you know, after a while, why even have uh, uh, either federal courts or state courts then, if any state court can serve the role of a of a federal court and vice versa? Maybe just putting a finer point on, on the rule that is championed in, in the brief that you're a part of. Um, it's one that includes some, some causation, a causal link. The other side, and indeed our previous guest, makes the contention that existing law with specific personal jurisdiction is, is more flexible, that terms uh, arise out of or be connected with um, and, and precedent um, don't necessarily require a causal link. And Professor Bratt um, describes that as a, as a good thing, that specific personal ju- jurisdiction kind of uh, it was created to fill a gap that general jurisdiction left open. Um, what is your response to that line of argument? I would say, uh, yeah, you, you want to have some flexibility, but as you indicated in one of your earlier questions, um, that, that flexibility shouldn't be so great that uh, defendants don't know um, where they can be sued for what. Um, they, ha- they have to have some uh, clear guidelines as to uh, what their liability is in various jurisdictions based upon uh, what they do there um, and, uh, you know, who, who can sue them there. And uh, we, what we asked for here in terms of the causation standard was simply to make that, um, you know, the rising out of or rising under language to tie that to a uh, proximate cause uh, nexus or standard because it will give greater clarity and greater certainty and greater predictability to uh, those who need it and those are the ones who are going to be hauled into court uh, to uh, answer for um, whatever one feels that they have done or their their product constitutes in the way of uh, deficiencies or defects. So we're, we're not saying that uh, the courts have all clearly uh, adopted this uh, approximate cause standard. We're asking for the court to take the uh, sort of welter of, of decisions over the years of which there has been much confusion as <laughs> to what uh, personal jurisdiction means and make it a little clearer and, and, uh, and make it more certain uh, by tying it to uh, approximate cause standard because lawyers and courts are somewhat familiar with proximate cause in other contexts, and it makes sense uh, in, in terms of, of all these other uh, confusing standards that are out there that, uh, that need to be made clearer for everybody. So would it be fair to say then that the causation rule, as you see it, is just a, a clarification of the standards that exist or a slight change in, in the standard? Well, it would be a, a change by clarification, yes, by making more certain 
you know, for instance, uh, you know, when the court talked about uh, in, in some of in its Burger King opinion, and even in originally in in uh, International Shoe, uh, the, what the minimal contacts were, uh, it used the the language approximately. Uh, leading to, or prox- it didn't say proximately causing, but proximately resulting, or something. So we're just saying, hey, that's a, that's they, they hit on it with uh, those phrases. So let's focus on those because it makes a lot of sense when you you take the other tests uh, that the courts have come up with for d- trying to define or explain what personal jurisdiction is. Okay, now um, there's some judicial efficiency arguments that are raised by the other side here. Um, the the respondents yes. uh, argue that the Bristol-Myers-Squibb rule would um, effectively uh, cause some some havoc in terms of suits like this being able to, to be brought, and that could cause them to be scattered and splintered around the country, whereas if you allow this suit to go forward, then these plaintiffs from different states, they file the, the suit here, and it's dealt with in one court as opposed to all over the country. What uh, what, what is your response to the, the efficiency arguments that are raised? Uh, the, the due process and fairness trumps efficiency. Of course, we like efficiency, but uh, you know, efficiency shouldn't be able to run roughshod over one's due process rights or the rights to fairness. CJAC uh, has as its uh, uh, sort of a founding principle to educate the public about ways to make our laws for determining who pays how much to whom. You know, when when someone's uh, conduct uh, occasions uh, harm to another, um, as uh, to make those laws uh, more fair, uh, um, clear, uh, efficient, and certain. Uh, but fairness is the is the primary objective here. I mean, if you list them in in ordinal position in terms of importance, fairness, which is due process, is the most important one, and you would like to combine it with. Uh, clarity and certainty and efficiency, but uh, efficiency, while it is important, is the least important. And when those two clash, fairness should predominate. And uh, there are all kinds of uh, U.S. Supreme Court decisions that have said that in different contexts. Okay, uh, you touched on this a bit before. One sort of macro level consideration that's also put forth in the briefer part of it is that it seems like maybe, as you say, that. The California Supreme Court ruling is in response to general personal jurisdiction being narrowed over the the recent years by the U.S. Supreme Court. The response being an expansion of specific personal jurisdiction. Um, is that how you would explain how this rule sort of came to be? That the it's just in response to the narrowing of general pers- personal jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. As it is narrowed, there's the, yeah. What that, what does that leave you with? If you don't have the general jurisdiction, you're left with the to rummage around in the dustbin of personal jurisdiction and uh, try to uh, find some way to assert it. Um, so, you know, grabbing... Uh, the problem is that uh, uh, personal jurisdiction is now amorphous and uncertain and uh, uh, where the uh, one person you mentioned earlier that you spoke with said that it's good to have this flexibility. Um our, our members and uh, uh, you know others that have uh, entered in the same side we have in this case say that uh, you know the, the flexibility is too great here um, because you have no clarity and you have no certainty and uh, you know jurisdiction can't be just an open-ended thing now where uh, you know once uh, someone has a, a marketing campaign and very minimal contacts. They've opened themselves up to a lawsuit in that forum from people who um, have very little contact with that that forum at all. Uh, in fact, I would say the uh, I don't know what what contact the the non-resident uh, Californian plaintiffs have in this case with California, other than uh, the the they bought and used a drug that they don't feel is a good drug, um, and there was a, an advertising campaign for that drug in California. That's basically it. Maybe a couple of broader ones to close. In your view, how significant is the uh, the ruling to come in this case? What sort of impacts do you think it could have? Uh, 
with whichever way it comes out for uh, potential parties, defendants and plaintiffs and, and civil litigators? Well, you would hope for a rule, as I said, that gives uh, greater clarity and certainty as to who can be sued uh, in in what states based on uh, what conduct, what, what required conduct. Um, we we just feel it would make it a little a little better. It would improve the rule. It's not uh, nirvana. Um, you know what what is it? Uh, pro- proximate causation, as I said, is something with which lawyers and courts are familiar. But it's by no means um, as uh, what you say uh, crystal clear. Um, what uh, proximate causation? Uh, one, uh, there was Prosser, uh, later picked up on by uh, the California Supreme Court, sort of uh, wittingly said that uh, you'd look at uh, proximate cause as a foreseeability standard on a clear judicial day you can foresee forever. And, uh, you know, that, that suggests that proximate causation has its own, I guess, its own debates over what it uh, means and to how far it extends. So it's not... Uh, it's not crystal clear, but it's an improvement and a significant improvement that would give um, uh, defendants and courts and counsel uh, a little better guidance than what they have right now in trying to figure out uh, whether personal jurisdiction does or does not apply. Okay. Uh, the one last one, having a chance to, to listen or read the argument transcript, how receptive do you think the justices were to, to either side's arguments? Well, as I, I didn't hear the argument. I read the, uh, you know, some of the transcript, I, and I looked at uh, uh, some of the blogs on it. Uh, it, it sounded uh, like Kagan, I think, uh, sort of basically said, uh, "So what? You know, what, what's the big deal about this?" Uh, and, and, and Justice Gorsuch um, thought, that, that, "Hey, it's it's not a, a complex matter, just." Uh, if we think the wrong test, we don't like the sliding scale test. Apply the right one, reverse it, remand it, let them, uh, you know, apply the new test and and see where that comes out. Uh, which, you know, conceivably, um, if they did that, it could come out. Um, uh, you know, back to the California Supreme Court, they could apply that proximate cause test, I suppose, and and may perhaps stretch it uh, to find that those uh, out of state residents uh, fit under that test and would go back up <laughs> to the U.S. Supreme Court to see if they applied it correctly. So um, I, I think the, uh, from what I read, the courts by, by no means themselves um, in, in agreement as to either the importance of the issue, though you'd think the fact that they fast-tracked this, basically. They, they granted review in January and, and set it for argument in April, um, so they must have thought it was fairly important to to address. Though I will say that in their past decisions involving jurisdiction, um, uh, you know, as you can tell from the briefs that were submitted in this case, um, people are still confused, trying to make uh, heads or tails out of them uh, as to uh, you know what what they lend to and how to how to improve those decisions to get some consistent. Uh, coherent, uh, clear test out of them. So uh, I don't know. It's it's this is a debate because it is so such an existential question that has been going on now for for well more than a century before the U.S. Supreme Court, and it's still obviously um, not resolved in a way that uh, you know people feel they can state it clearly as to when personal jurisdiction does or does not apply. Definitely a question that's been ongoing for for more than a century in the courts. Be interesting to see the next uh, chapter of it. Um, Mr. Fred Heestand, General Counsel with Civil Justice Association of California. Thanks very much for uh, unpacking the case for us and uh, letting us know your your arguments. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our show for April 28th. 2017 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity once again to thank both of my guests, Professor Andrew Bratt and Mr. Fred Heestand. Thank you also for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that one CLE credit can be yours for completing a very short true-false test pertaining to this broadcast. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday.
Have a great week.